you're going to pay for compliance either way. Either you pay upfront and you're well prepared or you pay down the line when the risk materializes. Money makes a Welcome back to another episode of The Laundry and in today's episode we are going to take a deep dive into the topic that has been on everyone's mind this year, sanctions. Amalia Verige is the head of sanctions and FCC focus areas in Danske Bank and has deep knowledge about this topic. Welcome to The Laundry, Amalia. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, how are you and your team doing? How has the workload been this year? Uh, it, it's been a very busy year, I would say, both for, for me and my teams and people in, in the sanctions compliance community more broadly. It's not that we were not busy before the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but this year has been extraordinary. And there are some tired people out there who've been working day and night within this year to implement the new sanctions and, and otherwise respond to the invasion. So let's dig into the topic. What has happened actually on the regulatory side after the invasion and what is the current focus? Right. So so what we have seen since February 22nd, which was sort of the, the formal starting, what we consider the formal starting date of the invasion, is that we have seen unprecedented sanctions action by what you can think of as the Western alliance of countries and also the sanctions authorities that most Western financial institutions will tend to pay attention to and and follow. So that is the US, it is the EU, and it's the UK. And the cohesion and coordination between those allies has been truly unprecedented. They have moved in lockstep, they've, they've coordinated actions, and that has also contributed to making the sanctions very impactful, especially when contrasted with, with other regimes that these different regulators have imposed from time to time. Yeah, because this has been the most coordinated effort, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And sanctions compliance practitioners, this is what we always want to see because it makes the practical compliance challenges a lot easier when we have coordinated action and we don't need to pay as much attention to potential regulatory conflict or conflict of law situations, which can otherwise arise in the, in sanctions compliance. But if we look then at, at what's happened on the regulatory side since the invasion, uh Depending a little bit on how you categorize it, you can now think of Russia as the most sanctioned country in the world. We have had a a very high volume of uh, what are called asset freezes or blocking measures imposed since February 22nd. There has been more than 9,700 imposed since the beginning of the invasion. And the asset freezing and blockings, they they target the the oligarchs and sort of the public officials and the politicians, Putin and sort of his network, as, as you would expect. But the asset freezes also target Russian financial institutions, the entities in the oil and finance sectors, the industrial sectors, high-level military personnel, as well as sort of propagandists, as they're viewed from the union perspective. So the uh, the asset freezes have been imposed at an, a, an unprecedented rate and pace. But there are also other sanctions that have been imposed that add to the overall very complex sanctions situation we find ourselves in right now with regards to Russia and also Belarus. Because in addition to the asset freezes, we also have what you can think of as a fairly broad category of financial and sectoral restrictions. So these are some of the sanctions, for example, that target the 
Russian Central Bank, the sanctions that impose certain restrictions on debt and equity, securities transactions, credit, financial assistance, investment, trade finance, and some of these things. So they're sort of fairly broad-based prohibitions that banks need to, and other, other market actors need to act in compliance with. But they're not as simple as the asset freezes because they tend to be conditional and there tends to be certain narrative descriptions associated with them from the regulatory side. Another category of restrictions that we've also seen a lot of action on is export and import restrictions, which are now incredibly broad in terms of what can be exported to Russia and what can be imported from Russia. So that's an attempt to hit the general industry. Yes, but also to prevent, for example, technologies that can be used to support Russia's own industrial production and base from actually being exported to Russia. So there is now, for example, a broad uh, prohibition to not export goods and services, goods and technology, sorry, that might contribute to Russia's military and technological enhancement. That's an incredibly broad-based export control prohibition in addition to some of the Luxury good prohibitions, which if anybody's had a had course to look at the luxury good lists that apply for Russia, you'll find things on there that we would maybe not traditionally consider luxury goods, such as porcelain and and, and coffee makers and, and toasters and, and and things like that. So that's put a lot of exporters on 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 the notice in terms of ensuring compliance. So if you are a toaster manufacturer, you are now prohibited, for, or a toaster manufacturer in Europe, you are now prohibited from selling your goods in Russia. Uh, subject to certain subject to certain conditions, yes. And and we've seen a lot of exporters who traditionally didn't have to think too much about trade compliance more generally suddenly be faced with a very harsh reality that uh, that the new restrictions did apply to their products and services. So this is quite extensive. And as you say, Russia is now the most sanctioned country in the world. How did you guys prepare and adapt to this sanctioned environment? Mm. How were you able to implement uh, all of this? Right. So there was, of course, a, a world before the invasion where we saw a number of uh, sanctions authorities and governments ultimately having pre-prepared some sanctions packages and they were meant at the time to have a deterrent effect on Russia. Obviously, we know now that, that they didn't work from the perspective of deterrence, but they were sort of advertised in advance and allowed uh, us uh, as a financial institution to to do, do a certain level of preparedness and to try to forecast what did we consider to be a likely outcome? What did we consider likely in an invasion scenario? So there was a level of preparedness that that we uh, that we undertook and that we were able to undertake. But I also think that retrospectively, what we had uh, analyzed and predicted did not, by any any means, go far enough in terms of the reality we are we are finding ourselves in today. So. Also, just a follow-up question to that. Was it, you know, in implementing these sanctions, was it a lot of effort on the human side, but also, or was it more on the technological side? Like, how, how did you actually implement it? And I'm asking out of pure curiosity here. Right. So, so if I answer this question sort of from the perspective of a financial institution, right, which is, of course, where, where I come from, the the magical words that you need to to say in terms of how do you adopt adopt and implement new sanctions is how do I use my sanctions compliance program to do that? 
how do I use my sanctions compliance capabilities to ingest the new sanctions as they are as they are adopted by regulators and then need to be implemented by by the private sector. So a sanctions compliance program, if in case anybody's interested, you can Google OFAC's guidance on it, which is which is very helpful. But it ultimately consists of some programmatic pillars that you want to have in place. And obviously, if you didn't have those before the invasion, then it's kind of hard to to get to a point where where you can also have effective implementation. But for us, this really consisted of, of six different steps. We had a regulatory monitoring capability or mechanism that was monitoring and, and to a degree also trying to forecast what would happen in the sanctions space so that we adapt, so that we uh, the regulatory changes very quickly. We then translate those into an internal framework that could, for example, be what's my sanctioned compliance policy and how do the new restrictions potentially affect that and risk tolerance or risk appetite decisions that you want, may want to make. We then have a internal and external communication. And I'll say that this is something we stepped up a lot on, especially in the early days of the invasion, to make sure that we were communicating internally that this was a very dynamic environment and people really needed to to pay attention to what was happening. At some some on some days it was almost sort of an hour by hour view how we needed to act, but also the external communication, the communication to clients, to uh, customers to regulators to to those types of, of external stakeholders for the bank. We then have how do we then take that into an internal control environment? How do you adapt your internal control environment? For example, your screening or your due diligence measures to uh, have the the new restrictions be fully reflected in your internal control environment in a sort of in a way that is proportionate to the risk that you face. And then the last two items that within sort of this very broad categorization that I'll mention are consequence management and regulatory engagement. Mm. Consequence management is a tricky category because it means what do I do with a specific relationship, a specific transaction, a specific financial activity once all of my controls have indicated that there's a problem. And depending on the nature of the restriction you're dealing with, could be an asset freeze, could be a potential problem in relation to the import and export controls that we discussed before. Your uh, The actions you need to take are going to be slightly different. And also you need to be in very close collaboration, close communication with your regulators and make sure that they are appraised of the steps that are being taken in a crisis situation like this. What has been the, the hardest part I think that the hardest part has been dealing with the impact from the perspective of clients and customers who've never had exposure of this nature before. So if we write it quite broadly within sort of the, the Western with the Western financial sector, we've never had as much, much exposure to, to sanctions as we do right now. And that challenges a number of, let's say, clients in the small to medium-sized segments who, for them... Maybe sanctions was a little bit more of a theoretical problem a year ago, and now that is no longer a theoretical problem. It's something that is affecting them and their profitability and their operations, and they've needed to adopt very, very quickly. And as a bank, you're often privy to some of those conversations in terms of them needing to, in some cases, completely readjust their business model because Russia is no longer a palatable palatable market for them. 
Mm. So do you have any specific examples you could share where Danske Bank, you know, you, you guys needed to take action as a consequence of the newly implemented sanctions? I think for, for us, the the impact in terms of what have we needed to to do to, of course, be, be in compliance with the regulation has, for example, been we have frozen assets at a volume that, that we've never, never actually seen before. We don't comment publicly on on sort of anything like volumes but but they have been been substantial compared to what we've seen and what we've seen in the past we have also engaged in a number of dialogues with various uh, customers for example clients who have been looking to exit russia who made the decision to exit russia within this year and there is a lot of complications associated with the, how do you in practice exit russia and now and day how do how do we actually do that in a way that stays stays within with within compliance with the sanctions, and is also palatable from other financial crime and sort of ethical concerns. So, those are just sort of some of the examples of what we have dealt with. But more broadly, I'll say that we have also seen a a true awakening among our client base of the reality of geopolitical risks, the types of customers who didn't used to think that their international operations was as volatile, could be as well, where the situation could be as volatile and dynamic as it's, it turned out to be now. They're really rethinking this. And I think that's, that's actually one of the positive outcomes of the sanctions that we've seen within 2022. Um, let's move over to another big topic within sanctions, which is counterparty screening. Huge topic. What is what is top of mind for you and your customers when when I say counterparty screening? Right. So I think, as, as you said, huge topic. There's a lot of things that you can dive into here. Some of the questions that we've also gotten within within the past year from from sort of very very various parties has, for example, been around. Okay, how do I make sure that the screening I'm doing? is not only against the regulatory list, the, the list that we get from OFAC, that we get from the European, the European Union, that we get from the UK, but also lists that give you coverage of the entities that are ultimately owned or controlled uh, by a designated party, let's say a Russian oligarch. Yeah, so have the and, proper uh, sort of network yeah. analysis in place to see the full picture, not just one specific entity on a list. Exactly, because under under most regimes, sort of the the same restrictions are going to apply to an entity that is owned under the U.S. regime and the EU and the U.K. regime that's owned by somebody who's on a, on a sanctions list. But under the EU regime, a control criteria also applies. So you then need to understand, okay, if an entity is owned, let's say forty five percent by somebody on a sanctions list, does that person also have control because in that case the prohibition will apply and you need to find meaningful ways of sort of screening and screening for and assessing those types of risks. How do you actually do that? Because I, I can't imagine if you call them up and ask for a KYC documentation that they will hand it over. Right. So so there are private vendors that can to some degree help you with this. I'm not going to mention any any specific yeah. vendors, but, but people can sort of go and Google it. But there are sort of lists that you can procure in the private market of that's based on proprietary research of entities that are owned or controlled or assumed to be controlled by by designated parties. If you say sort of, okay, so that's sort of the external, how do we make sure that we screen against what's out there in the world? 
internally, there's also a lot of challenges associated with making sure you're screening the right data against the right fields, with the right calibration, with the right frequency, all of these things. And just some things that are that are fairly fairly standard practices to screen. In addition to screening your own customers, you might want to screen their beneficial owners as well. Their associated parties and associated party definitions can then vary from institution to institution. But basically, where you have sort of the opportunity of screening counterparties, and that's proportionate to, to the risk that you face, it is something that, that we and, and other financial institutions make, make, uh, make use of as a fairly standard practice. And I need to ask you about <clears throat> sanction evasion, because we know that I'm sure if you're on the sanctions list, you want to avoid it and try to circumvent it. Any examples that you've seen that you could share like specifically or just in general, how people now try to avoid sanctions? Right. So I, I think you really put your finger on it. And I think this is sometimes a, a point that people don't necessarily appreciate, which is incentives matter. And we have a number of, of Russian parties who are highly incentivized to try to evade the sanctions, to try to, let's say, procure critical goods that they need for their processes. But there's a, now the export prohibition. So how do they get hold of that? Maybe they can try to use a third country. Turkey has been mentioned in some public uh, public publications as a potential hub for transshipment to, to Russia, ultimately. And there are sort of some of those types of evasion typologies that, that we are monitoring for and are, are looking into along with other financial institution counterparts. But at the same time, I'm not going to lie, sanctions evasion, it's Sometimes it can feel like oh, like it's it's proving the unknown because you don't necessarily have a good sense of what specific mechanism are people going to try to use before you see it play out in practice, and then you may you may already have a violation on your hand at that point. Mm. And also a question: How, like you mentioned, sort of certain thresholds on sanctions list, but if you ultimately control it, it still applies, etc. How do, you, how do you sort of balance the regulatory, the legal aspect? Okay, it's 45% as an example versus the fact that, okay, we, we know that this person did control it. It transferred, to, transferred ownership to family members or you, you know that there's something here, uh, but it doesn't really fall into the legislation. But from a moral perspective, you're kind of conflicted. Like, have you given any of that some thoughts or how do you think about that? Right. So at the end of the day, ethics and compliance are two aspects that have to be considered as, as part of the same framework. You want to make the right decisions for the right reasons, both from a legal and compliance perspective, but also from an ethics perspective. I think it's very important that, that different institutions adopt a, a clear risk tolerance or a clear risk appetite to say, this is roughly what we accept and this is what we don't accept. And then, of course, when you apply that tolerance to your business and to specific cases that might come up, it can potentially get tested in practice. And uh, you'll then need to exercise really good judgment in terms of what type of business you support and, and, and what you elect, uh, elect not to. And that's, of course, only in the, in the instance where you don't have a, a, a very clear regulatory obligation that tells you exactly what to do, which, which we have in a lot of these cases. 
Mm. Now, 10 months later, after the innovation, what are some of the reflections you've you've made? Some of the reflections, but also, you know, maybe maybe some of the learning points has been for me. Preparedness is really important. It can sometimes be quite a, a resource-intensive exercise to try to sit down and think, what could happen and what is my playbook if it does? But if 2022 has shown us anything, it is that it, it, it's definitely worth your while to, to think through a lot of scenarios before, before they happened. I also reflect on this having been a, a quite a, a, a critical live test of various organizations' crisis management capability. I hope and think that there'll be a lot of learnings from that for, for organizations to really reflect on how did we adapt to the rapidly changing geopolitical environment and, and the rapidly evolving and dynamic risk landscape. Maybe just as a last point on this, I think the, lar- the high-level conclusion is that we had a number of clients who were not ready for this. There were very basic measures that they could have put in place before the invasion that they had not, and, and ultimately they got caught out. So I'm reminded of sort of the, the classical compliance quote, which is, uh, you're going to pay for compliance either way. Either you pay up front and you're well prepared or you pay down the line when the risk materializes. And I think that there are some companies who have learned that lesson the hard way. That I hadn't heard that quote, but it's quite fitting. And I have to ask you about like one question about technology. So technology in this in this scenario, is it a friend or has it been a foe? Because there's big systems in place already that can be hard to change, that can be, you know, technology doesn't necessarily adapt as fast to the new sanctions regulations as the legislator. And then on the other hand, you have, you know, humans who can who can go through a lot of information, but, you know, again, it's manual. Donsky Bunk is huge. What's your thoughts? Technology, friend or foe in this? This is a huge topic, and I, I could I could spend a lot of time talking about the the various reflections on this. But but if I were to summarize it, technology is definitely your friend. You you can't win the sanctions compliance challenge if you don't have a really well considered and sophisticated use of the technology solutions at your disposal. At the same time, you need to be careful that the technology so- solutions are not ultimately removing critical thinking and and removing some of the human decision-making that also needs to be applied both on relationships and transactions and, and any other thing within the domain that you can really think of. Mm. We might need to have you back then on another episode to discuss this because I see time is uh, sort of uh, sort of running out. I have a few more questions and that is, as with everything compliance, the tone from the top is important. How have you and your team and worked together with the top management on this topic? Right. So what you'll find if you sort of look into the public domain is, of course, that we've made a, a number of statements or our, our, our executive leadership has made a number of statements on, on Russia and Ukraine and the invasion and the human impact, etc. So tone from the top has been incredibly helpful, uh, but also important. And it really is the most critical thing when you're trying to get this right from an organizational perspective. And san- wrapping up the topic of sanctions, what's what's next? What are the big dates and the next milestones to pay attention to? I think what will be 
very interesting to follow is to look at the enforcement trend for enforcement and prosecution trend for violations, advertent or inadvertent, of the Russian and the Belarus sanctions. We've had signals from regulators that they are going to enforce these sanctions quite aggressively. And and there's always something to be learned from an enforcement case because maybe somebody failed on something that in theory you could also have failed on. So are there are there learning points from that? And I think that will be a, a big topic within sanctions within the, within the next few years. Aside from that, if we sort of look more broadly, we still find ourselves in a situation of a significant geopolitical turmoil. There's a lot of places in the world where sanctions could become an issue or a tool or a, a well-utilized tool as a deterrence or as a as a mechanism to to signal discontent with, say, human rights violations or something to that effect. So there's things going on in Asia and South America that could over over time affect the sanctions landscape. So final, we're coming to the end here. And we have a lot of young professionals listening to the podcast, people who are just starting out in the field of compliance. Do you have any tips for people who are just starting out? This is a fantastic question, and I'm really, I'm really happy that you you asked it also because there is such a there's such a talent deficit both within financial crime, more generally, but especially within sanctions. That's just been made even worse within uh, within this year. So if there are young professionals there who are looking to move into the domain, I I really highly applaud and, and encourage that. Some practical tips in terms of what you can do is uh, try to find a mentor, ideally somebody that works, say, in a financial institution, if that's the industry you're trying to break into, who can advise you on what are the specific areas where you may need to uplift your knowledge or do a little bit more work to be considered as a candidate for, say, an entry-level position, for example. Uh, You can also try to see, are there ways that I can start with a financial crime team as a student assistant or even as an intern and see if, if that's a career for you, if there are opportunities for you there. And then the last thing that I'll mention here is, I think it's important to think about what area of financial crime do I think is interesting and do I want to specialize in? Sometimes we consider it to all be part of the same, the same underlying type of work. But there, there, there are a lot of differences depending on whether do you specialize in sanctions, do you specialize in fraud, do you specialize in counter-terrorist, uh, counter-terrorist financing, or, or even AML or anti-money laundering. So understanding the, the nuances there through your, your own research and diligence on potential employers is something I, I would also encourage uh, young professionals to think about. And final question, what is the best thing about working in compliance? I love that I go to work every day and make the lives for the bad guys just a little bit harder. That's a very good that's a very good answer. Uh, thank you so much for joining this episode, Amalia. I learned a lot. It was super interesting and I hoping you will come back for a future episode. Anytime. Thank you so much for having me. It's never been more important to have a trustworthy, global view of your customers and their business relationships with a technology setup that can operationalize the evolving changes at 100 times the speed. Therefore, we just launched Trice Global, a powerful extension to our KYC intelligence system that allows your first-line teams to fetch your customers' entire global network, including roles, UBOs, and ownership structures, with the click of a button. You can also perform more accurate PEPs and sanction screening across the entire network and continuously monitor them for changes. 
And finally, you can perform counterparty screening and entity creation, delivering a complete solution with total oversight. You can check out our new interactive demo of Strice Global at strice.ai today. Your money makes the world go.